Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from Obadiah in the first part of a sermon series called The Destructive Power of Pride, with this message from October 20th titled Family Feud. Family Feud is an American television game show by where family teams of five contestants compete to name the most popular responses to survey questions in order to win cash and prizes. Although called Family Feud, it is anything but a feud. Rather, it is simply two families engaged in family in friendly competition. However, I am sure you have heard of a family feud that was anything but a a friendly competition. In more recent history, there has never been a family feud quite like the one between the Hatfields of West Virginia and the McCoys of Kentucky. Although the tale has grown to almost mythical status, it is in its original, uh, there is in it, it has its origin, in fact, excuse me. Various members of the Hatfield or McCoy clans were killed off from 1863 to 1890, although the feud didn't officially end until 1924. William Anderson Hatfield had 13 children. Randolph McCoy had 16. And when you add in cousins and other relations, there were more than enough bodies to wage a miniature war. A pig was once involved at, in, this, in this dispute because the McCoys had thought the Hatfields had stolen one of their hogs. There was also an illicit Hatfield-McCoy love baby. However, many believe the fighting was mostly over turf and timber. The governors of both Kentucky and West Virginia were eventually drawn into the fray, as was a U.S. Supreme Court. Family feuds are more common than one may think. Even throughout the pages of scripture, we have recorded numerous family feuds. Cain, in a spirit of anger and jealousy, killed his brother Abel. There was conflict between Abraham's wife, Sarah, and her servant, Hagar, which then created tension between their sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Absalom revolted against his father, David. But the family feud I would like to give some attention to over the next several weeks is a feud between Jacob and Esau, fraternal twins who struggled in the womb of their mother and developed into two nations, Israel and Edom. As the boys grew, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents and Isaac loved Esau because he ate ate of his game but Rebecca loved Jacob. Jacob and Esau were complete opposites. Isaac favored Esau because of his hunting skills and Rebecca favored Jacob because he was more the past, more passive of the two. Some people even tried to depict Jacob as mama's boy. Esau who was born first was entitled to both the birthright and the family blessing. However, Jacob obtained the birthright from Esau who willingly traded it for a bowl of red stew. Later, Jacob obeyed his mother's instructions to trick his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing of the firstborn as well. Esau's hatred for Jacob grew so bitter that he vowed to kill him 
after their father, Isaac died. Well, fearing Esau's wrath, Jacob fled to Haran where he lived with, with Laban, his mother's brother for the next 20 years. In Haran, Jacob became a shepherd, married Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel, and he fathered 12 sons who later became the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jacob returned to the land of Canaan, Esau met him in a spirit of genuine brotherly love and reconciliation. There seemed to be no animosity between the brothers when they buried Isaac, their father. Esau's descendants, as I mentioned, were the Edomites who settled in Mount Seir, situated on the southeastern edge of the Dead Sea from the Zered River to the Gulf of Zabba. Eden's capital was Selah, called Petra today, and it was thought to be impregnable because of its mountainous location. The Edomites developed a fierce, independent spirit that fostered pride and a false sense of security. They saw themselves as unconquerable. A major trade route called the King's Highway, running north and south, passed by Seir. Caravans traveling the route were vulnerable to the Edomites, who often swept down from their rocky stronghold to rob them. Though Jacob and Esau had been brothers, the Edomites developed a deep-seated hatred for Israel. And their animosity first erupted when they refused to let the Israelites pass through their land on the way from Canaan, uh, on the way to Canaan from Egypt. But God had instructed Israel not to hate Edom because they were related. However, hostility dominated their relationship, especially during the days of King Saul, King David, Joab, and King Solomon. Edom's hatred reached its climax when the country helped the Babylonians conquer Judah in 586 BC. The book of Obadiah is a saga of these fraternal twins who later developed into the two nations, into Israel and Edom. And the majority of Obadiah's article pronounced judgment on Edom. Now, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, having only 21 verses, 670 words, one command, four questions, no promises, 30 predictions, 12 verses of prophecy, five verses of fulfilled prophecy, seven verses of unfulfilled prophecy, and three distinct messages from God. And so what I want to do at this time is read to you the 21 verses from the book of Obadiah. And if you are wondering where Obadiah is found, it comes right after the book of Amos and just before the book of Jonah. So the book of Obadiah, 21 verses, and it reads this way. This is a vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord that an ambassador was sent to the nations to say, get ready, everyone. Let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here? You ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. If thieves came at night and robbed you, what a disaster awaits you. They would not take everything. Those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor. 
but your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All your allies will turn against you. They will help to chase you from your land. They will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you and won't even know about it. And you won't even know about it. At that time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. The mightiest war- warriors of Teman will be terrified. And everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. But you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. The day is near when I, the Lord will judge all godless nations as you have done to Israel. So it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people and my holy mountain. So you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes. All you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place. And the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. The people of Israel will be a raging fire and Edom, a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord have spoken. Then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. The exiles of Israel will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives from Jerusalem exiled in the north will return home and resettle the towns in the Negev. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom and the Lord himself will be king. That is the Oracle that Obadiah pronounced on the nation of Edom. Obadiah's name means worshiper of Yahweh. And it offers an interesting counterpart to the message of judgment. He proclaimed and pronounced on Edom, Judah's neighbor to the Southeast. That God sent a man named worshiper of Yahweh. The one who had humbled himself before God to the people of Edom was no mistake. As I said, Obadiah stands in stark contrast to the Edomites because Edom had been found guilty of pride. Listen to what we read in verse three of Obadiah. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? 
The Edomites had thought themselves greater than they actually were great enough to mock, to steal from even harm God's chosen people. But the Lord God, a name Obadiah used to stress God's sovereign power over the nations would not stand idly by and let his people suffer forever. Through Obadiah, God reminded Edom of their poor treatment of his people and promised redemption, not to the Edomites, but to the people of Judah. The nation of Edom, which eventually disappeared into history, remains one of the prime examples of the truth that is found in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. You know the verse, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In this preaching series, which I have entitled the poison of pride, we're going to consider the pride of the Edomites and God's reaction to their arrogance. The Edomites pride was reflected in the trust that they put in their might the trust that they put in their riches, the trust that they put in their allies, the trust that they put into their wisdom. The manifestation of their pride was evidenced in their sense of invincibility, in their indifference toward the Israelites, the sense of superiority that they displayed, and the injustice that fell upon their neighbors. But before we study the manifestations of their pride and, and make application to our own personal lives, I would have us spend the remaining time this morning defining and describing what the Bible calls pride. Tony Campolo in his book, seven deadly sins tells the story of a great Florentine preacher of the 15th century. One day he saw an elderly woman worshiping at the statue of the Virgin Mary, which stood in the city's great cathedral on the following day. He noticed the same woman again on her knees before the blessed mother And with great interest, he observed that day after day, she came and did homage before the statue. One day he whispered to a fellow priest, look how she references the Virgin mother. And the priest responded, don't be deceived by what you see. Many years ago, an artist was commissioned to create a statue for the cathedral. As he sought a young woman to pose as a model for the sculpture, he found one who seemed to be the perfect subject. She was young, serenely lovely, and had a mystical quality in her face. The image of that young woman inspired his statue of Mary. The woman who now worships the statue is the same one who served as a model years ago. Shortly after the statue was put in place, she began to visit it and has continued to worship there religiously ever since. That is a description of pride. Pride is arrogant self-worship. It is a sin of exalting oneself and placing one's own interests above the interests of others. Pride craves admiration and even adoration, and it will not share the limelight. Pride deludes its victims into believing that they have no peers and drives them to try to destroy anyone who takes recognition away from them. The proud are in love with themselves and seek to call attention to their admirable qualities. Pride also keeps us from knowing the truth about ourselves. Those who are infected with pride can never become spiritual because they are unable to face up to those facets of their lives, which are evil and which need repentance rather than acknowledging their evil. They justify, they rationalize, they excuse their wrongdoing. Charles Spurgeon said this about pride. 
I might paint it as being the worst malformation of all the monstrous things in creation. It hath nothing lovely in it, nothing in proportion, but everything in disorder. It is altogether the very reverse of the creatures which God hath made, which are pure and holy. Pride, the firstborn son of hell, is indeed like its parent, all unclean and vile. And in it there is neither form, fashion, nor comeliness. Andy Stanley, in his video series on the topic of pride, said, Pride diminishes you. Pride diminishes our capacity to admit, to apologize, and to acknowledge. It diminishes our capacity to say what needs to be said, to hear what needs to be heard, to give what needs to be given. It crowds others out. It crowds God out. In Psalm 10, verse 4, we read, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In early 1941, England had just survived the Blitz, a series of massive German air attacks that included a systematic bombing of London for 57 days and nights. The cost had been great with tens of thousands of civilians killed and a million houses destroyed and damaged. While the threat of an invasion of the United Kingdom seemed unlikely, the the rattled British population faced the likelihood of a long and bloody war. To reassure people, the British Broadcasting Corporation decided to expand its religious broadcasting to include some short 10 to 15 minute talks by an Oxford person by the name of C.S. Lewis. The BBC's director of religious broadcasting had been impressed by Lewis's apologetic work in his book, The Problem of Pain, and figured that Lewis could share his quality of thinking and depth of conviction on the airwaves. Lewis agreed. And in August of 1941, he started the first of four series of weekly radio addresses. Because he had been an atheist for many years and had become a Christian fairly recently, Lewis could empathize with those who struggled with the Christian faith and and some aspects of it. So his first two sets of talks focused on apologetics or reasoned arguments in support of Christianity. And they were later published in the United States as the case for Christianity. In the fall of 1942, his third series of talks covered Christian behavior including things like morality, sexual immorality, uh, forgiveness, faith, and the great sin. And he asked the question, what is the great sin? What sin is worse than any other? And he replied to this question with clarity. He said, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And then he goes on to say, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the unmost evil is pride, unchastity, Anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state 
of mind. Recognizing that some in his audience would object, he spent the rest of his talk giving reasons why pride is the worst of all sins. And so I want to share with you this morning as we develop this whole aspect of pride and what it means and God's reaction to it. I want you, I want to share with you the six conclusions he came to. He says a proud person has to be better than everyone else. He writes pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud out of proud about. It is a comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. He goes on to say that a proud person is never satisfied. Take it with money. Greed will certainly make a man want money for the sake of a better house, better holidays, better things to eat and drink, but only up to a point. What is it that makes a man with $10,000 a year anxious to get $20,000 a year? Now you have to remember he was writing in 1941, but he goes on to say, it is not the greed for more pleasure. $10,000 will give all the luxuries that any man can really enjoy. It is pride. The wish to be richer than some other rich man and still more the wish for power. And that leads to his third point. A proud person craves power. He expressed it in this way. If I am a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world, more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. Lewis characterized pride as a chief cause of misery in every nation, every family since the world began. Well, other vices such as drunkenness sometimes brings people together. Pride never does. It drives people apart. It says pride makes you God's enemy. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. His fifth point was that pride makes you vulnerable to the devil. Vices other than pride, says Lewis, come from the devil working on us through our animal nature. Pride, on the other hand, is purely spiritual and consequently far more subtle and deadly. He says pride is spiritual cancer. It, eat, it eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And then finally, he says you can be blind to your own pride. Pride is universal. Something we all deal with. As ancient as Adam and Eve, as relevant as a morning news. Yet we don't always see our own pride, which weaves like weeds around our lives. Oh, we see it in the obvious ways, but we can be blind to its deceptive, subversive ways in our hearts. We know the disease, but we don't recognize the symptoms. And that's why we need the insight of our great spiritual physician to reveal symptoms of pride and to rescue it from us because pride is a posture 
that stands in direct opposition to God. And so as we make our way through the book of Obadiah, we're going to see how the nation of Edom manifested its pride and how, because of their pride, they, they lashed out against their neighbor, Israel and how they treated Israel harshly because of the pride that was in their heart. But there is hope for the proud heart. And that hope is found in the incarnation of humility, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us, descended to live among us, to die for us, to raise us to new life. Jesus never owned a shred of sinful pride. And so as we make our way through this book over the next several weeks, a couple of things I would encourage you to do. First of all, I would encourage you to read this book several times throughout the week. 21 verses. That's not a big ask, is it? 21 verses. Take you five minutes to read through it. Do that a couple of times a week. Why do I ask you to do it? So you become familiar with the text. And uh, possibly, if you have a, a, a more recent translation, such as the uh, New Living Translation or the Living Bible, read it in a, num a number of different translations as well. And I think that will help you gain an understanding of the book. But as we continue to make our way through the book of Obadiah, there's another question I would have you ask yourself. And that would be to be very honest and ask, how does pride manifest itself in my life? So allow God through the Holy Spirit to put a spotlight onto your heart and ask him to reveal the deceptive ways in which pride has taken root within you and ask him to reveal those areas so that you can be an individual that moves towards humility, that postures yourself toward God and has a heart that is bent toward God rather than away from God. As you honestly acknowledge any pride in your life, God, through the power of his spirit, will help you root that sin from your life. And so, as I mentioned, over the next several weeks, we're going to make our way through the book of Obadiah, and we're going to look at some very practical things. I believe very practical things that you and I can do to root that pride from our lives so that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Would you please bow as I close in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the entirety of your word. For this obscure book of Obadiah, consisting of 21 verses. And yet it's this powerful book as it addresses the issue of pride. Something that each one of us struggles with, that we're not immune to. And so, Father, I pray that we would be honest in these next several weeks that we allow your word to penetrate our heart, to, to reveal what's there, that we'd be bold and courageous to, to confess and to acknowledge it, that we'd humble ourselves out of your mighty hand. And Father, that we would take some very practical steps that would cause us to overcome this evil that can so easily take root within us. But again, I pray that as we leave from here, we will go with the sense of your presence, 
Father, that we would allow you to um, lead us and to guide us. I pray that we would be aware of those around us who do not know you as Lord and Savior, that we would be willing and ready to give a testimony, to share of our faith uh, without fear, without compromise. And Father, I pray that um, this week would also find us growing deeper and deeper in our walk with you. Um, Just a desire to allow you to transform our lives even more so than you've already have. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash tbcswanriver. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash templebaptistchurch or search on your favorite podcast app.